Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of the Hamilton Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have with us here Dr. Mike Duran. Dr. Duran is a senior fellow and director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East at the Hudson Institute. He specializes in Middle East politics with a minor in grand strategy, let's say, dabbling in an understanding of how the United States should think about our strategic orientation, particularly to the Middle East, but even more so writing more recently a lot about the Caucasus and, and Central Asia as our definition of the Middle East changes over time. He's written a couple books, most recently Ike's Gamble, a history or understanding of Dwight D. Eisenhower's approach to the Middle East back in the 1950s. He served in the Bush administration. Recently translated into Hebrew. Recently translated into Hebrew. Okay. All right. So well, for all your Hebrew uh, All the Hebrew all listeners. The Hebrew speakers out there. <laughs> great. I'm sure we'll get a good deal on that. He served in the Bush administration in the White House as Senior Director of the National Security Council, also at the Department of Defense and at the State Department. So he's really kind of hit the trifecta of the national security institutions. And so, Mike, welcome to the HS Podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. And he may not remember this, but it's actually someone I've known for 15 years since I was a lowly intern in Washington, D.C. and was always welcoming a fun and interesting conversations. I hope this will continue to be the case here today. I can't remember when I met you, actually. We met as an intern. When I was an intern, you were a serious human being. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I was? You were. (laughs) We'll find out if this is still the case today. (laughs) So, Mike, I want to start us off actually on the subject of Iran which somehow has receded from the news, given Russia, given China, given some of the other things. But it was literally about a decade ago in late 2012, when the Obama administration had begun its then secret negotiations with Tehran over the status of its nuclear program. took a few months after that for it to come into public view, and then those negotiations turned public, resulted in what was then known as the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Agreement, That stayed in order for three years. The Trump administration then pulled out of it and instituted a maximum pressure campaign. The Biden administration comes to office saying, we're going to go back into it. And yet things haven't quite happened to plan. And so the first question from you is when you look back to the decade, and I just summarized in like 10 seconds, but the decade that has passed, what is different today when it comes to the Iranian nuclear file, Iran's position in the region than a decade ago? And do you feel like a lot has changed? The clock ticked further than midnight, further away from midnight? How do you look at the last decade on this? Oh, hey, uh, interesting question about whether it's ticked uh, further than midnight or further away. I'm more optimistic now than ever before, than, than I have been since 2012, that we're going to get a sane policy that's going to stick. I mean, I like Trump's, I liked maximum pressure. I think maximum pressure was the wisest policy. I could quibble about some of the ways it was implemented under Trump, but I think the conception was correct. But I knew that if Trump didn't get a second term, they were going to overturn it because they have made their approach. They, the Biden administration. Well, the Democrats, Okay. the Obama-Biden approach. I don't think Biden's approach is much significant in its main lines from Obama. And let's call it uh, appeasement. Because I, I think, I'm not saying that to, as a slur word, I think it genuinely is appeasement of Iran. I knew they were going to go back to it, and I knew it was going to fail. The only question was how quickly it was going to fail and what the consequences of failure were going to be. But I think everyone now knows, I think everyone, you know, including Jake, if we had Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor here, and we filled him with truth serum, and we asked him, how's the Iran policy working out? He would say, 
it's not working out at all. It's on life support. But not in the way you would say it's not working out, right? Or do you think actually in the same way that you conceive of it? Well, let's put it this way. They won't admit openly that it's not working out because then everyone will say, well, what's What's your plan plan B? B? And they don't want to go to a plan B for all kinds of reasons, which we can discuss. And that, so no, they wouldn't have the same attitude as me because I really want to go to plan B and I want to go to plan B now. And I think it's really necessary to go to plan B. But before we get that, why isn't it working out? I mean, what's changed in the interim decade that has allowed the Iranians to be either more obstinate or even more stubborn about the deal that they seemingly had willingly accepted seven years ago with the Obama folks? Well, I think that Iran recognized under Biden that they could get everything they wanted from Biden without making any concessions. They don't need to go back to the deal because they're getting all the major benefits anyway. I mean, they're selling oil to China like mad while we supposedly have crippling sanctions still in place on them. Yeah, that's a, this is one of the things, you know, one of the games the administration plays. And the Obama administration used to play it before, where they will say that, you know, the sanctions are still in place because they're still on the books technically, but they're not really being enforced. So they're not lying in the most technical sense when they say the sanctions are still in place. But the non-enforcement is a kind of soft sanctions relief. And so the, in your mind, it's the Iranians have read how the Biden team is playing the interim period before they were getting to a deal. I mean, the Biden team sort of said, well, if we halt maximum pressure in its tracks, we can sort of hold it, but it's leaky. And that'll buy us just a little bit of time and maybe even some putting scare quotes, goodwill with Tehran that will actually sign a deal. And you're saying that from Tehran's perspective, they actually said they've already read through that and said they're actually pretty happy with the status quo. Totally. So they're in the best of all possible worlds because they get what they, first of all, they know that the Biden administration cannot guarantee that any relief that they give them when if they conclude the deal will stay in place after an, the next presidential election. They've already lived through it once, but they knew that anyway. So, and that's significant because it means that a lot of businesses, the way our sanctions work is that it raises the cost of doing business in for Tehran. And they already know from experience when they concluded the JCPOA the first time around, international businesses didn't run to get back in. They were hesitant because they recognized, businesses recognized that it could shift on a dime. And even with the deal, the nature of the regime did not change. The nature of the regime did not change. So all of the uncertainty around business is still going to be there. And the kind of businesses that they really want, this is, you know, oil and gas, it takes huge investment up front to realize the profit on the back end. And these companies are not going to want to go in and make those kinds of investments when they realize that the political risk involved. So the Iranians have factored all that in as well. So they've got a good thing going with the Chinese, and it's not going to get that much better if they sign the deal. But then they also, not signing the deal, allows them to cheat massively on their uranium stockpiles, which puts pressure on us. I mean, they're using the nuclear program to blackmail us on everything else, much as they would with a nuclear weapon, like with a nuclear threat. The nuclear program, getting as close as it is to an actual weapon, is already serving as a way of leveraging us. So so walk me through that, because you said two interesting things, and at first they struck me as contradictory, but I think they aren't, if you kind of walk me through them. So the first is that Tehran is actually pretty happy with the status quo of no deal, because our pressure on that is, is non-existent. On the other hand, they're using their consistent and for a while accelerated, but now consistent progress on enrichment and reprocessing to actually put pressure on us to ostensibly make us give more concessions to give a better deal or pressure on us to do what exactly? Because if they don't care for the deal. Pressure on us not to use maximum pressure or to deter us. We are militarily deterred with respect to Iran. And we are also deterred in terms of, for example, 
I think there are several reasons why the Biden administration can't shut down the trade to China, or at least you know make it much more difficult and expensive. But one of them is that they fear that it will lead to military escalation. The Iranians will respond by enriching to 90%, for example. And then our only answer will be a military threat. And the Biden administration will do anything to avoid getting into a military escalation with the Iranians. And the Iranians know that. So they have us over a barrel. So is this, you start off this line of question by saying that, you know, if you gave the National Security Advice some truth theorem, he'd admit that policy isn't working. But on the other hand, you know, is that true? If I, I'm not, I wouldn't say the administration is colluding with the Iranians on this, that that's a f- far too strong, but isn't the status quo also working for the administration in the sense that they can continue to say, well, we're at the table and we're negotiating and we're getting closer. They're, to your point, are not removing sanctions, but they're not necessarily enforcing them. Isn't this a good place to be for the administration as well? I think that that's from the administration's own point of view. Right, from their point from of their view. From their point of view. I think for the United States of America, it's a sucky place to be. But from the, the administration calculates that it's good because they have, I think the other two things, or I say the other three things that they're thinking about. One, the military is looking and we've got a war in Europe. We have a potential war in South China Sea. And uh, the last thing the military wants is a military escalation in the Middle East. So if they avoid the escalation with the Iranians, kind of muddle through in this way, that's better than the alternative. They also, I mean, from a domestic political point of view, Biden doesn't want to go to war with progressives. There's already enough tension with the progressives over a lot of issues. He doesn't, they catechized since 2012, you were talking about, even before 2009, they catechized the left wing of the Democratic Party to believe that they had some alternative way to cut a deal with Iran, to contain Iran. Biden published, or you know, somebody under Biden's name published an op-ed during the 2020 presidential uh, election campaign that said there's a smarter way to contain Iran. And when you go into it, what, what's the smarter way? Well, to give them everything that they want, basically. But he doesn't explain the mechanics about why it's able to do that, that he's able to do this. But this is a deeply felt belief among progressives. I mean, it's a totemic thing. It's not arcane policy. If you go, you know, and you look through progressive literature, there are two foreign policy issues that are kind of core issues for their self-understanding or self, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Self-belief. Identity. Self-identity. That's the word, identity, for their identity. One is the Palestine question and one is the Iran nuclear question. That There's this other way there's this path to deal with rogue regimes through sweetness and negotiation that uh, evil Republicans don't recognize. So Biden doesn't want to have a fight over that. And the other thing he doesn't want to have a fight over is oil. He doesn't want to take any oil off the market right now. That's why he had that fight with Saudi Arabia, because he's got a soft deal. There was a dirty backroom deal, maybe with no cigar smoke anymore. Times have changed. But there was a room that would have been full of cigar smoke 30 years ago in which he made a deal with progressives to retard fossil fuels in the United States, development of fossil fuels in the United States, which means he wants all the, the world still needs fossil fuels and it will continue to need them. He wants foreigners to produce them, not domestic producers. And so he doesn't want to take that oil off the market either. So why haven't, in your mind, why haven't the Iranians crossed that 90% enrichment threshold yet? And even beyond that, if you are saying that you don't expect to see a deal at all, it sounds like, unless there's some dramatic shift in our concessions, let's say even further than where we've been. What happens not only in terms of plan B of Nodia, but what happens or what is preventing the Iranians from, let's say, actually developing the full capability they need or even test, let's say, a, a weapon? 
Two uh, different questions. Yeah, yeah. Let's go with the first part of the question. Uh, actually, which I already lost. What was the first part? What, what is preventing today or deterring today the Iranians from crossing that 90% enrichment threshold, which seems to be the next big line? I think the Iranians are concerned about three things. One is snapback in the UN. The snapback remains for another year. Uh, which is a mechanism under the under, JCPOA uh, Well, yeah, deal. technically under UN Resolution 2231, which is the UN resolution that endorsed the JCPOA. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when we say JCPOA, do we mean the actual agreement or, right, the, right. or, or all out of the stuff the, around? The JCPOA regime. Yeah, uh-huh. the JCPOA regime, 2231. Any participant in the JCPOA can re-invoke six Security Council resolutions that 2231 replaced. And all of those six resolutions say that it is illegal for Iran to enrich and reprocess uranium. Period. That was Period. one of the biggest concessions in the first place in the Iranian nuclear It was nuclear the most ridiculous. It was, that was the concession that Obama gave up front to the Iranians, which gave the whole game away. That took all his leverage away. Once he said, okay, this process of us negotiating with you will end with having all restrictions on your program lifted. So from that moment, the negotiation was just about what's the length of time before those are, are lifted and what do the Iranians have to do in order to have it lifted. But you're saying is despite that initial concession, which obviously has changed the decade that have followed, despite the Biden administration's position on this, despite the French and the British and so forth, you're saying that the Iranians still think that perhaps crossing the 90% threshold might actually, yeah. in Washington it, or in those European capitals, trigger a different race. My, my trigger snapback. It might trigger an Israeli military action or much harsher Israeli clandestine action against their program. It might bring about international support for Israelis doing that. And it could possibly, possibly, I think they don't see this as a major threat under Biden, but it could possibly even trigger American military action. So they're, they're going to be careful about that. Uh, do you think they that. are the Iranians are correct and those could potentially happen? Or do you think that that is a misread of the United States and the West, even at the, crossing that 90% threshold? I think from their point of view, look, they're in battle right now. They've got all kinds of problems at home. They've got a really serious problem with Azerbaijan, which I want to talk about. And they are, why risk it? I mean, they're very good at identifying weak points in the West, a little friction between different elements of the West and so on. And the image that comes to my mind is always a guy with a stone and there are cracks in the stone and he's taking a little hammer and just hitting away, not a big sledgehammer and hitting it, but just a little one and just widening the gap, widening the gap, widening the gap. They're very good at that. They're getting so much benefit from going to 60% enrichment, which they're at right now, without actually triggering any kind of offensive countermeasures from anyone why risk it? Do you think that the, you mentioned that they get, they're embattled a bit, and you're referring to the now a month and a half or so fairly widespread protests by all different types and classes of Iranian society against the regime. Is that a factor at all in your mind in how the regime actually approaches this nuclear question or the nuclear negotiations? I, um, I think it has to be. It has to be. I can't, if you ask me to tell you specifically what they're thinking, I don't know. You know but you asked before, about them testing, I think at some point they will test a nuclear weapon. I don't know when exactly, I think they'll, but it's not conceivable to me that they will stay in this position forever. But they're going to want, one of the things that they want to do is they want to scare the world. They want to deter the world. 
And the more desperate they get, I think that might incline, I'm completely contradicting myself here, but it might incline them to test more rather than less. But you're saying a test out of a position of weakness or desperation rather than at a, a position of aspiration. Yeah, could be either. Yeah. And you never know. I mean, these things can go either way. What's your sense? The one of- thing I, sorry, I read more classified intelligence when I was in the White House on Iran than on any other topic. And I developed uh, two answers to all major questions about Iran. And then they were, I don't know. And it depends. It made me aware that whenever anyone goes out in front of a microphone and says that they know what Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, is thinking, I immediately just turn off and don't listen to them. because I mean, It means you will listen to the episode of this podcast that you're recording since you're not going to answer questions in that way. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not. <laughs> the absolute hardest thing to understand is exactly how did Khamenei understand the connections between some of these different things. Really hard to understand. Let me use, use my next question, but actually to zoom out just a little bit, because we're talking all about these bilateral Iranian-American dynamics, Iran in the West, some of the Iranian internal dynamics, but it's hard to do that in a vacuum without looking at you know the greater board here. Given that you've now had, uh, I would argue, three administrations in a row that in different ways, and we could talk about that, but in different ways have basically sought to withdraw the heavy American presence in the Middle East. I'd actually say four. By four the in a row. You think the Bush admitted George think, W. Bush? I think, I think by the, the end, I think Bush, the second term of George W. Bush, in which I served in the White House, I think that's when it began. Okay. So, but we've had it's been a while now, and from both parties. And I feel typically the rule in Washington is if you have a big concept that's done by one and reaffirmed by the other, you now have a new normal, opposed to kind of swinging back and forth. Given that that is going on, doesn't seem likely to change on the horizon. What would, in your mind? the Iranian testing of a bomb mean here in Washington? Talk about plan B of there is no deal. That is very different than what is plan B if the Iranians choose to test a bomb, when at the same time, Republicans and Democrats generally don't see the Middle East, even though they certainly see it very differently from one another, but they don't see it as a priority theater by any stretch of the imagination. I think that it would, my best guess is that it would play out pretty much like Iranian missiles and drones going to Russia has played out. I mean, I think that that was a very serious geopolitical shift, Iranian missiles and drones being used in the Ukraine war. I mean, we now have Iran supplying the second biggest arms producer in the world with very serious offensive weapons that could kill NATO advisors, American advisors, even on the ground in Ukraine, certainly going after NATO weapon systems and supplying them in a high-tempo war. So there's an industrial capacity there. Not just the quality of the weapons is surprising, but also the ability of the Iranians to produce them for this kind of conflict is surprising. And what policy shift did we get in Washington over it? A lot of Nothing. noise. We're both yeah. nodding our heads yeah. in, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. saying not much. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, but I think it affirms people like me and all of my assumptions, but it doesn't, I don't think it, it changed fundamentally the perspective of the Biden administration. If they, so if they, tested, if a, if they tested a nuke, the Biden administration would say, we had, see, the JCPOA had solved all this and because of Donald Trump, we now have a nuke. That's, that would be Do that. you think if the Iranians tested a nuke sometime in the next, 12 to 18 months, you think that the response from the Biden administration is generally going to be, we told you this would happen, but not much else? Oh, well, no, no. There would be a flurry of sanctions. You know, we would find all kinds of new individuals to put sanctions on. There'd be lots of deliberations, but then there would be um, all of the same logic that hasn't produced snapback yet. I mean, the 
Iranians are in flagrant violation of the JCPOA. They are flagrantly advertising the fact that their nuclear program is a nuclear weapons program. There's no reason to enrich uranium to 60% other than to make a nuclear weapon. Of course, we always knew this, right? But there was this game which the Democrats participated in under the JCPOA that we were somehow containing the Iranian program to a civil nuclear program. Right. I never believe that. I assume you never believe that. But that was the conceit of the Democrats. You can't argue that anymore. It's ridiculous. And in fact, you have official and semi-official voices in Iran now saying, who are we kidding? This is a nuclear program, right? A nuclear weapons program. So that has happened. And no serious voice in Western governments that I have heard is talking about snapback. I'm talking about in the governments that participated in the JCPOA. So what's going to happen when they test a nuclear weapon is they're going to say, well, the key thing we have to stop is, or they'll, they'll test a nuclear device, you know, in a hole in the desert. And so then they'll say, well, no, we have to keep them from putting the device on the warhead, right? And then once they put the device on the warhead, then they argue, well, we have to keep the missile with the warhead from being deployed in the field. That's the next, right? There will always be the next step. You know, we have to, well, the missile and the warhead are on the field, but the guy who pushes the button is 50 meters from the button. We have to keep him between 50 and 25 meters. There will always be the next step. And the Iranians, like I say, are very good at this, at these sort of incremental things. And the argument will be that if we get too tough with them, you know, if we take military, well, we, the military action, I mean, the military action to destroy their program would be a war. We can't have a catastrophic war. It's better to negotiate with them and so on. And suddenly it becomes North Korea. They have this stuff. They test, they use every, you know, they periodically. And then they resell the donkey to us over and over again. So they'll test once and then they'll resell the donkey. They'll, we, we won't test again if you give us X, Y, and Z. I want to ask another question because something you said prompted this, but then get back to the question of the broader Middle East, which is there's an active discussion. Putin has threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons in the Ukraine war in the Ukraine context. You know, it's certainly not my expertise. Folks who feel like no say well saying it's still not likely. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it is more likely than it was, let's say, six months ago. In Russian nuclear doctrine, they also have a demonstration or environment shaping doctrine when it comes to these things. And the debate or response in Washington, both from the Biden administration, but even from a number of Republican senators, has not been to say that would prompt a nuclear response by the United States. It has been much more mealy-mouthed and unclear as to whether, well, it depends how it's used, the response might be conventional, there might be no response, we might accelerate aid to Ukraine. It's all over the place. And even the president himself, not recently, in remarks that I think were not meant to be public, but ended up being public, said, well, this could lead to nuclear Armageddon. Which you could read both ways. You could read as a as a way of saying we are deterring ourselves from doing anything, or as a an eloquent way of saying, well, the only way you get to nuclear Armageddon is if we respond. And so he's saying we actually will respond. It's unclear is the short answer. How do you think the Iranians see this debate when it comes to their decision about whether to test something or not? Do they see these things as, are they watching what the Russians might do and how we might respond to these things? Or oh, totally. to your point, it's a totally separate thing because it's about kind of selling that donkey one more time, negotiating every little step of the way until ultimately somebody's finger is right on a button. They see how effective it is. There's no doubt that the nuclear threats from Putin have deterred us significantly. And I'm not just saying, you know, with respect to the response to a possible use of a tactical nuclear weapon by Putin, but the policy of the Biden administration at the beginning of the war, you know, in the buildup to the war, was to find an off-ramp for Putin. 
And then once the war started, early days, we actually gave up Ukraine completely. And you remember when they offered Zelensky a, an asylum. And he said, you know, I don't need a ride. What did he say? I, don't I need, need some it. ammo. I need some ammo, right? So that basically paved the way for Putin. Then since, you know, there's been this process, I lost track of how many times we've seen it, where administration officials say, you know, we can't give the Ukrainians escalatory it's offensive because it's, there will be escalatory offensive and so on or because the lawyers won't let us or because you know the, the moon is later, in the, they end up the, doing the, it basically. right and then they yeah yeah they say it, no on monday and then they do it on tuesday and they do it on tuesday in response to some escalation by putin that becomes politically unacceptable here at home but we're always reacting to him we rarely make him i don't think we've ever really made him react to us even even what was just reported over the weekend where these aerial and naval drones work together to attack russian um, ships in the black sea ships in the black sea that i see as a response to the iranian missiles and drones not anyway i see us as always playing catch up that's one point. And the other point is because of fear of escalation. And secondly, the administration has decided, probably at the highest levels, I mean, probably Biden himself, to keep the war in Ukraine. Right? They don't want the war to go to Russian soil because they figure that that will be a trigger. And so what happens when we do that is we keep thinking that the Ukraine, what they tell themselves is Ukraine is doing so well, so surprisingly well. They weren't expecting this kind of, expecting the Russian military to be as bad as it was. Nobody was. And nobody was expecting the Ukrainian military to be as good as it is. And so we say, wow, that's really surprising. I bet Putin is shocked that his military is as bad as it is. I bet he's shocked that the Ukrainian military is as good as it is. He probably wants to cut a deal. Well, no, there's been no sign of that yet. So instead of saying we want Ukraine to win, and we're going to give it the tools that it takes. We could give them the tools that it takes without us having to even operate them. We could give them the tools to wipe out the Russian army. And by that, I mean drones, right? If we just gave them top-of-the-line American drones, taught them how to use them. If we started teaching them how to use them, you know, at the beginning of the war, they would be deployed now. If we gave them, like, exists in the Middle East, in the UAE, the UAE has top-of-the-line American equipment, which is operated by American contractors. So they're not actually American soldiers, Americans that are hired by the Emiratis. This is like the THAAD missile system. We could do that with American drones easily. And they could train the Ukrainians while we're going along and Ukrainianize the whole process very quickly. Somehow the administration determined by what process of divination, I don't know, that this is so escalatory it's going to lead to nuclear war. But anyway, all of that, that whole line of thinking about keeping the war in Ukraine, it means that we're going to bleed Ukraine slowly, and then Putin ends up in a, a more advantageous position. Things are going, you know, not quite as bad as all that, but they could be going a lot better, and we won't do it. That is because we have been deterred by his... I'm still answering your question, if you, if you forgot what it was. No, I remember. That's, a, that's because he has been deterred. And the Iranians are looking at that. The Iranians are looking at North Korea, and they're looking at this... And they're looking at the fact that there was a... How did this all begin? This began because in the Budapest Agreement, the West gave Ukraine an assurance that its territorial integrity would be respected if it gave up its nuclear weapons. And that assurance was worth nothing. And then they see Putin making nuclear threats and getting respect. And they conclude, I want a nuclear weapon. I mean, it sounds like it's obvious, but on the other hand, it takes some spelling out that even in a successful... Or Ukrainian position in this war, it seems like the Iranians stand only to gain from what's gone on in Ukraine one way or another, because either 
we, the United States, are being self-deterred. Putin's threats are working. They've kept us out of conflict. They forced us or they have made the administration feel like it had to uh, slow support in a variety of different ways. And the point you mentioned, the Iranians are now an arms supplier to the Russians, which is turning the tables pretty dramatically. Yeah, amazing. And, And you think they're an arms supplier to the Russians. And now that means the Russians are deeply invested. Putin is personally invested. When he needed it most, the Iranian missiles and drones were there for him in his hour of need. He's going to do everything he can to help the Iranian defense industries get what they need on the international market in order to keep up the supply. So that program, as disturbing as it is, is going to get more powerful now. So let's talk about how those dynamics affect some of the other important countries in the region, especially when it comes to this question of how should the United States actually be conceiving of the region, especially as there is no appetite, say, for a return to a heavy American footprint in the Middle East. First, I would say on this list is Saudi Arabia, which if there's any country, I think, in the world where the Trump administration, the Biden administration had taken the most opposite approach to, let's say, I'd probably put Saudi Arabia at the top of that list. Right. If you're sitting in Riyadh, how are the Saudis reading what's going on in Ukraine first? Do they see this as, you know, the Americans are doing a decent job at actually putting the Russians on their back foot and the Ukrainians are winning, let's say, in the moment, even if there are issues with the speed and the nature of our support in different ways? Or are they saying the Americans don't seem to really have the stamina or the political willpower to do what's needed to be done vis-a-vis Iran, vis-a-vis Russia? And this is why we have actually formed an energy alliance with the Russians. This is why we have, I certainly wouldn't say actually moderated their views, but this is why they have been less publicly negative towards the Iranians in different ways. They've been forced to make some play nice concession different ways. How are the Saudis looking at what's going on? Well, their number one concern, the top three concerns of the Saudis and the Emiratis, when they look at any of this, are Iran, Iran, and Iran. Everything they do, I think, comes back to that. And the number one thing that they are concerned about is complex of Iranian drones and missiles. I just have to flack, I have an article coming out on this. By the time this podcast goes, it will already be out in Tablet Magazine, arguing that Iranian drones and missiles are driving the Saudis and the Emiratis to Beijing and out of the American sphere. Because the Iranian drones and missiles, the Iranians have put these together in a very innovative and interesting way. Let's call it Iran's disruptive military capacity. What they do is they put missiles and drones. They have a very diverse arsenal, by the way. You know, they have ballistic missiles. They have cruise missiles. They have different types of ballistic missiles. They have different types of cruise missiles. They have different types of drones. And they mix them all together in the same strike packages, which stress defensive missile defense networks. Because you know, if you have uh, two or three ballistic missiles, each one has a different arc, so it's a different signature for a sensor to pick up. And then you combine that with a cruise missile that can go around the sensors and then drones that the sensors can't see. Some of this is going to break through any defensive net. And the United States, by policy, this is the Biden administration by policy, will not offer offensive capabilities to their allies. So the only thing they will offer are state-of-the-art defensive technologies defensive systems. Now, these are very good systems, but even a great system, you know, working at peak capacity can only intercept, you know, nine out of 10 missiles. So the Iranians have time and time again shown the Emiratis and the Saudis that they can break through their net and that they're not safe. And the United States will not respond to this. It will not take the measures necessary to actually deter the Iranians. 
for fear of escalation, right? That's the reason, going back to that. For fear of escalation. And because all their policy assumptions, you know, going back to Biden's notion that there's a smarter way, that's Obama's notion, there's a smarter way to contain Iran. Because really, the assumption underneath all this is that Iran and the United States share some basic interests. And if the United States will just play nicer with Iran and show that we're not really trying to topple them, then they will stop trying to take over the region. It's a complete misreading. It's a complete misreading of who the Iranians are. The Iranians want to take over the Middle East. They have an imperial strategy, and their development of their proxies and their delivery of missiles and drones to their proxies is part of that imperial strategy. They can now hit every major population center in the Middle East. They can hit every major component of critical national infrastructure of every American ally. They can hit every American base. And they showed that to us on Ain al-Assad base after Trump took out Qasem Soleimani. They hit it with between 13 and 16 ballistic missiles. We had no defense for it. So they've shown that over and over again. And the Emiratis and the Saudis have said, hey, we are really vulnerable here. What are you going to do about this? And we say, sit down and negotiate with the Houthis. As if the Houthis are really parochial actors making decisions on their own. Right? The Houthis have these Iranian drones and missiles because Iran wants to use them for as part of its imperial strategy. But even if we've denied them these capabilities out of fear of escalatory dynamics with the Iranians, let's say, the Saudis in particular going to Moscow and then going to Beijing, subject of your article, they don't really think they're actually going to get what they need out of those places, do they? Or is it merely to try and create the semblance of leverage to go back to the Americans and say, hey, you know, there actually is some cost to you not actually giving us these things? Or do they actually think that the Russians can actually be more helpful in solving the issue that they have? Well, I think it's this. I think that they, first of all, they can't get some of the weaponry that they want to counterbalance the Iranians. In particular, drones and missiles. The United States they will, can is what you're saying. They cannot, cannot, cannot. The United States will not give them drones and missiles. So if you go and you look at what are the things that they're buying from Beijing, they're buying drones and missiles. There's a reason for that. <laughs> These are the very disruptive capabilities that Iran has developed that they have no answer to, and Beijing is offering them. Even though Beijing is pumping up Iran, you know, economically at least, and probably now helping it militarily, at least reports are that that is going to be coming. And it's doing that with one hand, and then with the other hand, it's offering the Emiratis and the Saudis some of what they need in order to, to counterbalance. So Beijing has now, without having a, any, you know, any serious military presence in the Gulf region, Beijing has become part of the balance between U.S. allies and Iran. That's quite amazing, actually, given that we are the greatest military power on earth. They are our allies. They have been our allies for 70 years in the case of the Saudis. And we are the world's greatest producer of ballistic missiles and drones. So, you know, for us to have ceded that territory to the Chinese is actually superpower malpractice. But it goes further than that. If you look at the United States from the point of view of, let me just ask you, as an observer of international politics, could you go to the Emiratis and the Saudis and bet your house that 10 years from now, the United States will be the dominant power in the Gulf and the Chinese will still be a secondary or tertiary power? No, they have to hedge. They have to hedge because the United States is the declining power and China is the rising power. Now, I think this is, you know, Charles Krauthammer's old decline as a choice. We don't have to, there's nothing about the objective 
balance of power, the objective metrics in the world that says we have to be the declining power in the Middle East, but we are. We have set ourselves on that trajectory. And the Chinese are coming and saying, hey, boy, we're the rising power. And then there's another component to this, too, two other components to this. One is the Chinese have actual influence in Tehran. Now, how much? I don't know, but they have some. So if the Emirates and the Saudis want to sell a piece of their economy to the Chinese to give China a stake in stability in the Gulf, they don't want, if the Iranians are going to come in and say, we're going to shut down all oil supplies and we're going to destroy critical national infrastructure, they want Beijing to say to Tehran, we don't think that's a good idea. So they're hedging in that way. Now, part of that hedging strategy leads to my second point. One of the things that they're doing is they're working in commercially, I'm talking about the Emiratis and the Saudis, commercially with the Chinese on technologies that I would call defense adjacent. A lot of analysts are looking at this and say, well, this is just commercial activity. Well, it's not. It's much more than that. Dual use. Not even dual use. Like, look at Huawei. The Emiratis went for Huawei 5G, and as a result of that, they got kicked out of the F-35. They were denied F-35s. That was a $23 billion arms deal. So if you take that, I mean, I would call them the complacent analysts in Washington about this. They look at the price at the amount of money that the Saudis and Emiratis are spending on Chinese weaponry, and they say, well, it's like a tenth of what they spend on American weaponry. So, yeah, it's like America has no, it doesn't have to worry. And plus, it's all commercial, as you were saying before. There's no, there's no bases here in the Gulf. And to that, I say two things. I say, well, first of all, if you put the $23 billion that was just taken away from the United States as a result of Huawei, it looks, the balance there in terms of dollars looks a lot more equal than you think. But what you're saying is that this is not merely a leverage strategy or a negotiating strategy to get the Biden administration to deliver on what they want. No. You, th- you think this is a, you know, maybe low, slow trending in this direction, something that's gotten accelerated by conscious choice of theirs to, you know, to, to find a substitute, if you will, we said uh, for to the, what we, we can we, provide. We sent to the Emiratis, if you go 5G Huawei, your telecommunications network, then you cannot get the F-35. And they said, okay, we'll take that deal. That's not signaling. That's not threatening, right? They have said, we prefer for China to have a piece of us than to be a first-tier member of your alliance. That should have sparked a kind of Sputnik moment here. And then on top of that, the news in the Wall Street Journal that the Chinese were building a military base or facility, whatever you want to call it, in the UAE, that should have really woken people up. The Chinese already have one base in the Middle East, in Djibouti. Now, it gets coded here as an African base, but it's 20 miles from Yemen. And it happens to oversee the Bab al-Mandeb, one of the most important waterways, uh, well, energy choke points on the globe. And they were going to build another one in the UAE, which is on the Straits of Hormuz. So, And what in your mind, because I want to move to some of the other major players here, but what about the Saudi energy alliance with the Russians, which has been a big, big deal in American politics, obviously, over the course of the last year and most recently, which is supposedly snubbing or undercutting some deal the Biden administration had maybe achieved with the Saudis to raise oil production and said they announced a pretty big cut, which is clearly going to play here domestically in a variety of ways. Well, I think it's partly the same thing. They're hedging away from the United States. They're hedging toward Beijing. They're hedging toward Russia. I'm not sure that their decision on the oil price You know, to a certain extent, I think it was just a a sound economic decision from their point of view. But when Biden came to them and said, hey, don't do this, 
their response is going to be in their own heads. I don't know exactly how they're going to express it, but it's going to be, okay, you want me to play with you. You know, we haven't historically, this has been understood as an oil for security deal. We help you with the international oil markets. You provide us with security. You're not holding up your end. You're at the same moment that Biden is demanding this of them, you know, and when he went in the summer to Riyadh, he's about to sign the JCPOA. The JCPOA is going to put hundreds of billions of dollars into the coffers of Iran, which is their major threat. So what are they thinking? It's crazy. I mean, what are they? I mean, what is the Biden administration thinking? Why do they think that the Saudis are going to start tap dancing for them? Especially when you add all the, you know, Biden came into power saying he was going to make Mohammed bin Salman a pariah and lifting the terrorist sanction. Here's a question for you. Let me play professor, if I may. How many cross-border attacks from Yemen into Saudi Arabia with drones and missiles did the Houthis conduct in 2021? So the year after the Biden administration came Hundreds, thousands, I, I mean, a large number. 325 is the exact number. Yeah. You know, the Biden administration lifted the terror sanction on the Houthis, effectively blamed the Saudis. On for day the, one, I think, if the, I yeah, remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, if not day one, it was day, day three, whatever. But they effectively blamed the Saudis for the rhetoric, blamed the Saudis for the war in Yemen, never criticizing the Iranians, never criticizing the Iranians. How do they expect to get the Saudis to cooperate with them when they won't provide the American end of the deal? Turkey, one of the other big players in the Middle East, and I know one of your... I don't want to say most interesting countries to talk about or debate, but partially because I think and this is really kind of inside Washington baseball, but partially because I think you've taken a different strategic position about the role Turkey does and should play in American strategy than many other here in Washington who agree with you on a lot of other issues for that matter. But I don't want to get too inside baseballery right away. We can, we, we, we can keep it real simple. Turkey, good. People who think Turkey is not good, bad. This is this is Mike's way of saying Mike good. People who disagree with Mike, bad. Um, well, yeah. But, but Turkey, and I'll, let me try and sum it up and you can correct my summary of how you're seeing it. Turkey is, Turkey's been a complicated, if not at least difficult ally of the United States for the last, let's call it 15 years or thereabouts. On the one hand, it is a strategically vital country sitting at the crossroads of Europe and Asia or Asia and Europe and the Middle East in different ways. It is a major player in the Black Sea. It is a major player in the Eastern Mediterranean. It is a major player in Syria, in Iraq, in the Caucasus in different ways. It has, in recent years, played a significant, I think from the American view, positive role when it comes to the Azeri-Armenian war. It's complicated, but it has been manufacturing and selling some of the most effective drones to Ukraine over the last two years, I guess, I think or so. And you've seen them in action over the last seven months in the war. And it has in recent months also started to come around and let's say make nice with the Israelis, with the Saudis and Emiratis in different ways. On the other hand, it is continuing to host Hamas, internationally recognized terrorist group, or I wish it were internationally recognized, they, an American and Israeli recognized terrorist group. It is still sympathetic to, if not supportive of a number of Muslim Brotherhood groups in a variety of countries. And it has still played, I don't know what the right word is, but footsie, at least with the Iranians, on a variety of issues. I got silence on everything, but sort of a nod on that last one. No, you didn't get so, a nod. You got it. So, no, you got it. I'm sorry. I, I have a, I have Bill's so, palsy, so the, this half of my face doesn't... Uh, the, so, so the, I, so my first, what you got was a grimace. A grimace. Got, oh, man. The, so, so the, the idea that they're playing footsie with the Iranians... So, so, so laying out the stakes on this, I think, is important. So the first is, how do you see Turkey? Do you 
roughly agree with how I laid it out. How do you see Turkey's role in an American-led order, let's say in the Middle East, which is one I think that we would wish to have? How is it being impacted? And these are, we can divide these. How is it being impacted by the dynamics we talk about? How is it being impacted by Russia's attack in Ukraine? How is it being impacted by our lack of ability to get back into some Iranian nuclear deal? How is it being impacted by China's increasing prominence, let's say, in the Middle East? Will you bear with me if I, uh, instead of directly answering this question, if I force you to talk about Azerbaijan? We can, well, we can talk and about I will, that context, and I will, but I want to... No, 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 but I, I, I want to I start with Azerbaijan because it's a big part of my answer about Turkey. So I think it's just easier if we go... I don't think I can say no. I think, I think I'm worried about escalation. <laughs> <laughs> so look, speaking of escalation, something really dramatic happened in the last couple of weeks. We're doing, you and I are doing this on Halloween just for the benefit of the listeners. And in the last two weeks, President Aliyev of Azerbaijan in an interview with the head of the uh, Organization of Turkic States said that Azerbaijan is not just concerned about the welfare of Azerbaijanis in its country, but also the Azerbaijanis who live outside of Azerbaijan. And he said, and you know that the numbers outside of Azerbaijan are much greater than the ones inside. And he said, we're not just concerned about their, meaning he's talking mainly about the Azerbaijanis in Iran. In northern Iran, in, mostly. Yeah, right? northwestern Iran. But they're also in Tehran as well. Historically, I don't know what it's like today, but historically the bazaar in Tehran, which, you know, the beating heart of Iranian commerce is... Um, Azerbaijanis are, I don't know if they're the dominant element, but they are a major element in the bazaar in, in Tehran. But the total number of Azerbaijanis in Iran, these are people who at home speak Azerbaijani, don't speak Persian, is between one-fifth and one-third of the entire country. And they are geographically concentrated in the northwest quadrant right under Azerbaijan. The unofficial capital of Iranian Azerbaijan is Tabriz. So he went on to say, we're very concerned about their cultural rights and their language rights. So he is inciting to a certain extent or expressing an extraterritorial rights over the Azerbaijanis of Iran. This is, I think, the number one fear of leaders in Tehran, which American foreign policy is largely unaware of. So anyone who thinks that containing Iran is an important project, a national security priority, should be familiar with Azerbaijan and should be supportive of it. That's why Azerbaijan is an ally of Israel. Israel gets about 30% of its oil from Azerbaijan. Israel supplies weapons to Azerbaijan. So there's this aspect of things. Then secondly, Iran has massed troops on the border with Azerbaijan and threatened it in the last couple of weeks, is threatening it, saying that it wants to change the border with Armenia, as Iran is an ally, it's a satellite of Russia, and an ally of Iran. Iran is saying that Azerbaijan and Turkey are going to change the border. It's not true. What Turkey and Azerbaijan want is a peace treaty with Armenia that will open up corridor, which the Turks and the Azerbaijanis call the Zangazor Corridor, which is a, an economic and transport corridor that will traverse Armenia. And the importance of this is that it will open up a direct route 
through Turkic states from China all the way to Turkey, Turkic states plus Armenia, that will bypass both the Russians and the Iranians. Now, something like that already exists to a certain extent through the Southern Gas Corridor, which goes from Baku through Georgia, then on to Turkey, and then on to Puglia and Italy across Greece and, and Albania. There's also the BTC, the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan oil pipeline, which goes from Baku to Jehan. That's how the Israelis get their oil from Baku. Now, it should be an American and European national security priority to connect up the southern gas corridor to Turkmenistan across the Caspian Sea, and oil, the Baku-Tbilisi-Jehan pipeline, should connect up with Kazakhstan on the other side. And that would then, that would severely diminish Vladimir Putin in the world because the Kazakhs have massive oil reserves and the Turkmen have massive gas reserves and European energy security would be, supplies would be secured and Iran and Russia would be diminished. So anyone who like, I think you and I both see China, Russia, Iran as the triumvirate that we need to be worried about. If you care about that, then you should care about Azerbaijan because it's the cork in the bottle of Central Asia. It's a major element for destabilizing the regime in Iran, putting it on its back foot, and it's a major element for changing the balance of power through non-military means against uh, Putin and the Iranians. None of that happens. None of it can happen without Turkey because Azerbaijan stands on the shoulders of Turkey. So that alliance that exists between Israel, Azerbaijan, or the triangle that's developing as we speak between Israel, Azerbaijan, and Turkey is something the United States should be working to build. This is happening without the United States. Are you, I just wanted to, are you saying that Azerbaijan and the Caspian energy reserves, let's call it, are actually more strategically important to the United States than Turkey is, but that... Turkey is an essential part of accessing that because you couldn't do one without the other. I'm saying, yeah, both. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, not asking you to choose no, between no, your children. You know, I get no, that. No, no, but like, that's what you're, you're right. I mean, it's like asking me, you know, what do you like better, your right leg or your left leg? Yeah, I kind of like both of them. I can't do what I need to do if I lose either one of them. So, and if this is something that people don't understand, are you saying that if people were to better understand the energy dynamics and how they relate to the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians? it would lead to a different view of how to approach Turkey? Or you're saying that if we are able to improve our relationship with Turkey, which, by the way, also has somewhat to do with them and their behavior, that it would make this easier? You won't find a lot of agreement with me that the Turks are at fault in the deterioration of U.S.-Turkish relations. I'm willing to say that the Turks have often failed to explain themselves well in Washington, but I put the overwhelmingly put the responsibility for the deterioration of the relationship on the U.S. And just as I would on Saudi Arabia, we, the United States has forgotten in the Middle East about how, about why it's there and what the basic bargains are with the allies. We have to create, just like we're saying with the Saudis, we have to create a security architecture in which the, each of the allies can solve its major security dilemmas together with us. But we have started to work against all of, and this happened under Obama primarily. You can go deeper. You could go back in the Bush administration. I don't like to blame the Bush administration for anything because I was part of it. But, uh, <laughs> but it really, uh, under Bush, it was mistakes of omission, I think, primarily. And under Obama, they were mistakes of commission. How would you, how would you talk about bargain? I think that was very clear when it comes to Saudi Arabia, what that is. How would you phrase what the alliance bargain is today or ought to be today between the United States and Turkey? 
will say every Turk in terms of Turks on the street and Turks in government will say that there's a number one national security priority or a national security threat to Turkey, and that's the PKK. And the United States allies. Which is the PKK is? The PKK is a Kurdish separatist organization that seeks to divide, to partition Turkey between a Turkish and a Kurdish state. And the United States, unbeknownst to, I think, the vast majority of Americans, even Americans who follow foreign policy, has become the ally. And the PKK is a terrorist organization recognized by the United States, the European Union, you know, all major European countries as a terrorist organization. And the United States allied with it in Syria. And whenever the Turks complained in, about in, it. In 2011, from 12 onwards. Uh, onwards. Yeah, yes, yes. What the Americans call euphemistically the Syrian Democratic Forces are dominated by the YPG, which is the Syrian wing of the PKK. And we rebranded it to the Syrian Democratic Forces in order to hide the fact that it's actually the PKK. And so this is the equivalent of the United States arming, training, and equipping Hamas, you know, in Jordan uh, or in, you know, in, in the Palestinian Authority. And when the Israelis complain about it, we tell them to sit down and shut up, you lovers of terrorism, you know, you're, what's wrong with you? I mean, it's for a great power to do this to its ally of 70 years is, it's outrageous. But aside from the fact that I find it outrageous, just from a practical point of view, this was never going to work. This is what you say I've taken a different attack. Since I became fully aware of the extent of this and the absence of any pushback in the government, I've been screaming about this since 2015. And what I've been saying is, this is not going to work. We're going to leave Syria sooner or later, and the Turks are not going anywhere. So we can really you know, piss them off royally and then watch them crush everything that we build with the PKK, or we can see that this is never going to work and adjust accordingly. Those are the choices. And, what's, and Anything else, it's just chewing on clouds. It's not worth even talking about. And what's the bargain part? What's the other side of it, right? I mean, clearly, you're saying for the Turks, it's the fact that we have supported, let's say, their number one enemy, let's say. We, 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 the work, United States. we work with them. We stabilize Syria with them. We counterbalance Russia with them. We counterbalance Iran with them. They are a natural counterbalance to Russia and Iran. I was grimacing when you were saying this because they are a natural counterbalance. What people do is they cherry pick a few things that the Turks have done with the Iranians or with the Russians and then build this whole case that this is a proof that they're not an ally and that they're working against the United States with its enemies. You know, without recognizing, for example, that, you know, we can do the exact same thing with the United States. All the things that the Turks have done with the Russians or the Iranians, the United States has done with the Russians or the Iranians. It's got, you got to look at the totality of this. How many of the people who are saying that because of the S-400s, these are the air defense systems that the Turks got, from the Russians that Turkey is an ally of Russia. How many of them know that they're building up the Ukrainian, we're building up the Ukrainian Navy, which we can see right now the results of, you mentioned the Bayraktar drones in the Ukraine. Well, they were also developing the Ukrainian Navy. They have been staunched from uh, 2014 that the annexation of Crimea is illegal. They killed more Hezbollah fighters in, in Syria than anyone else, with the possible exception of the Israelis. Nobody even notices when that happens. It's obviously still too soon to know exactly where the Russian war in Ukraine is going to end if it does end. But how has this changed the U.S.-Turkish relationship or Turkey's role or our understanding of what Turkey's role ought to be in that region? Well, Mark Twain 
supposedly said, unfortunately didn't really say it, but uh, he supposedly said that God created war to teach Americans geography. And so Americans suddenly figured out, well, where's the Black Sea? Gosh, what country's under the Black Sea? You know, who has, which country controls the straits that, uh, from which you get from the Black Sea to the Mediterranean? And they wised up. There are people in this town, I won't name them by name, but you know who you are, right? Who are still arguing seriously seriously, that we should move all of our bases out of Turkey and move them to Greece. Like you can just substitute one country for another. Forget about the qualities of the Greeks, whatever you think that they are. Those countries are not in the same place on the map. You cannot guarantee Black Sea security from Athens, right? You can't do it from Lesbos. You can't. This is just, it's ridiculous. I can't believe that we're even having this kind of discussion among serious people. And you, they also fail to realize that if we were to do that, taking the forces out of Turkey. What do you think the Turks are going to do? Are they going to come crawling on their knees and beg us to come back? We're going to push them in a direction that we don't want to see. This very alliance that they claim to exist between Russia and Iran and Turkey, we're going to push the Turks more in that direction by doing that. So let's talk about the last, I think, major country when it comes to America's role in the Middle East or building the American order, which is Israel, I think. The Israeli relationship with the three countries we just mentioned, Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia are also very different <laughs> one from one another. In many ways, the Israelis, I think, find themselves on the same side of things as the Saudis on almost everything, if not everything. With Turkey, the Israelis feel they've borne the brunt of what you call, I think, Turkish misexplanation of some of the issues. But the Israelis, I think, see it as actually a real issue in a variety of ways. Uh, yes and no. Uh, yes and no. You don't think the Israelis see how Turkey's acted towards it over the last decade as serious? They built up this somewhat counter-alliance with Greece and Cyprus and lots of talk of trying to get the gas pipelines that they are building to go around Turkey as opposed there's to through a, there's, Turkey. Uh, there's, there's talk and there's, there's talk and there's talk. The gas pipeline from Israel to Greece is never going to happen. It is a completely... A, because of economic reasons, or, though, Because right? of economic reasons. Because no company is ever going to build it. Never, ever going to happen. And it's commercially non-viable. However, the Greeks like to play it up as part of their... Con I think the Israelis have allowed themselves many times to get sucked into... The Greeks and the Turks have been fighting each other since the end of World War I. They often cooperate. You know, there is, like I was mentioning, the Southern Gas Corridor, which goes from Azerbaijan to Italy, through both Turkey and Greece. They cooperate over that fine, no problem. But then there are areas where they have tension. The Israelis, I think, have allowed themselves to be used a bit by the Greeks against the Turks. And now maybe they think they're putting you know, some pressure on the Turks as well. The Israelis had to pay lip service to this idea that their gas was going to go through Cyprus and Greece. That was never going to happen. And any Israeli who had looked at the subject seriously understood that that was never going to happen. And they would use it as, you know, rhetorically. I'll tell you what happened. The Biden administration, the smartest thing the Biden administration ever did on energy, it did for a very stupid reason, but because of its commitment early on to um, green energy renewables the biden administration pulled the plug on any idea of america underwriting supporting whatever the pipeline from israel to greece and i guarantee you and actually i know this for a fact actually i'm not this isn't me just speculating i know it for a fact the israelis breathed a real sigh of relief 
when that happened because it gave them an excuse to start talking to the Turks about a pipeline to Turkey so that they can hook into the Southern Gas Corridor that way because that way makes economic sense. Whether they will do it or not is a whole other question, but they always understood that that was the more viable. And the day after, and again, I know this for a fact, the day after the Americans pulled the plug, they started talking with the Turks about it and they said, now we have an excuse to tell the Greeks and the Cypriots that we have to go this other route because the Americans won't let us. So let me re- I so didn't, I didn't, let me rephrase, let me rephrase always, a little bit the question then. There, there, Israel, for all its wonderfulness, and there's nobody in Washington that thinks it's more wonderful than I do, but for all its wonderfulness and for all its capabilities, which are amazing for a country of its size, it is still a diminutive country. It's got 9 million people. And so there are things it cannot do. And it has to be powers the size of Israel can't have a grand strategy in the same way that the United States can. One of the major issues that they have to be concerned about all the time is their relations with a great power patron. Same thing for Saudi Arabia, same thing for the UAE. To a certain extent, same thing with Turkey. Turkey's bigger, Turkey's stronger, Turkey has a tradition of going its own way, and it can defy the United States a little bit more than say the Israelis or the the Saudi a little bit more comfortably than the Israelis and the Saudis can. And so you have to read through a lot of the rhetoric. A lot of the rhetoric is about managing the great power patron rather than actually trying to shape things on the ground. There was a week ago, I think or two weeks ago or so, when the Israelis signed this, I don't know what you want to call it, but sort of a non-deal deal that maybe demarcates a maritime boundary of a status quo between Israel and Lebanon. It's a messy non-issue, but political issue at the same time. There were some offhanded comments that Israeli Prime Minister Lapid made to the American energy envoy along the lines of, well, you guys seem to have screwed up the Saudi relationship, but at least you gave us this. And they were sort of joking about it. How does Israel look at the U.S.-Turkey relationship and the U.S.-Saudi relationship at the same time? Because it seems like it gets frustrated by, but it understands the toggle in terms of how Washington approaches Tehran. I don't think it's confused by what the United States has done, even if it disagrees with it, let's say. But on on the Turkey and the Saudi side, I think it's a much more complex understanding or messy understanding of what this is. So what does Israel want to see out of these things? I don't think Israel has a clear view because... First of all, I don't think any power in the Middle East reads the American strategic debate clearly. They focus in on things that directly impinge whatever they're worried about today, and I don't think they understand the wider picture. And I say this after having talked to all of them at the higher levels for a long time about this. So, for example, the Israelis did not understand in 2013 when Obama erased his red line and then Syria red line, Syria red line, and worked with Putin supposedly to dismantle Assad's chemical weapons. The Israelis didn't understand that that was a prelude to um, JCPOA. That that was appeasement of Iran. They didn't read it that way. They didn't see it. I know that. I tried to talk to them about it, and I tried to explain this is a prelude to appeasement of Iran. They saw it as two things. One, they saw they were skeptical that this would actually strip. Assad of his chemical weapons. But they saw the United States and Russia working together to at least diminish some weapons of mass destruction. So they thought, ah, 
Well, this is a model. This is how we explain to the Americans, this is a good model because then we can use it in Iran so America and Russia can work together to diminish the nuclear threat from Iran. That was point one. Point two, Netanyahu had his differences with Obama on the Palestinian question, but also on the Iran question. And he didn't want to be the guy, because he has to manage his superpower patron, he didn't want to be the guy that's beating his desk all the time and saying, no, 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 you don't understand, Barack, you don't understand. You know, they look for opportunities to say, hey, this is great, we love what you're doing. And so they looked at Syria and they thought, well, we're not going to go into Syria and do anything. We can't ask the Americans. The Americans clearly don't want to go into Syria militarily, and we're not going to do it. So we might as well just praise them and, right, and see if we can direct this. right? But that then became a major... You remember Dan Shapiro was our ambassador in, uh, in Jerusalem. And in, in, every, in Tel Aviv, actually. Uh, well, oh, Tel Aviv. <laughs> yeah, I was actually in Tel Aviv. Right? I forgot. It was the good guys who moved it to Jerusalem. Right? So uh, anyway, he was our ambassador in Tel Aviv, and he never missed an opportunity to message that the Obama administration diminished the threat from Iran's proxy Assad, getting rid of chemical weapons, and the IDF praises it all the time, right? And that's very important because that sends a signal through Dan Shapiro, who's known as the American Jewish guy with real deep commitments to Israel. He's sending a message to the American Zionist pro-Israel community that, hey, Barack Obama really cares about Israel and his kishkis, and this is really proven. I, and I'm there, and the Israelis understand it too, and it puts our guard down to what's actually going on. The Israelis were quite late to catch up to the, they were earlier than most because they had very good intelligence about what was going on in Oman and so forth, but they never understood really what hit them. They never understood the fact that the Syria file was a kind of um, secret rider on the JCPOA deal. And they, so how do they, if they I mean, if, even if you're laying track to say that the Israelis are not actually good at understanding American political dynamics they're in a not. lot of ways. No, no, they're not. But how do you think they see today, well, t- today what the Biden administration uh, is looking t- at Saudi Arabia no, or so Turkey? They, t- today, the Israelis are as crazy as we are right now because they, in, you know, in our politics, there's pro-Trump and anybody but Trump. And in their politics, there's pro-BB and anybody but BB. And the anybody but BB team, which is Bennett and Lapid, they have made an alliance with Biden and the anybody but Trump. So Biden and Lapid are in an alliance against Trump Netanyahu. And so this deal you mentioned, for example, this ridiculous maritime border deal. I wrote the seven myths about the maritime border that you can find at Hudson Institute, Hudson. www.hudson.org. Seven he actually myths. is paid for that advertisement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> but there, all the things they're claiming about it, normalization with Hezbollah, normalization with Lebanon, it's all nonsense. And this is very much Biden and Lapid against Bibi and Trump. And it is... The thing that bothers me the most about it is that what Biden is doing with this thing is this was a concession to Hezbollah. This was appeasement to Hezbollah, appeasement to Tehran. And Biden got a stamp of kashrut, you know, a kosher stamp of approval from Lapid and Biden for appeasement of Hezbollah. And the system that Biden is roping the Israelis into is exactly the same system that he's roped the Emiratis and the Saudis into which is that you don't get to use offensive countermeasures and you, against Iran's proxies and against Iran, and we will not back you up if you do. And if I understand the analogy, you're saying that just in the same way as the Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid is putting a stamp of approval on the U.S. desired deal with Lebanon, that is the prelude to the Americans being able to claim that they have an Israeli stamp of approval onto the next thing, just like Netanyahu's approval of the American-Russian 
removal of some portion of Syrian chemical weapons deal. The Israelis didn't understand it at the time, but it became a prelude to or a exactly. Greece. Uh, exactly. Uh, exactly. The Israelis should have this. You have the eyes focused on one thing and one thing only. That's Iran, the rise of Iran's power, not just its nuclear power, but also its proxy power. And they should have their antenna out and alert to any effort by the United States to appease those Iran and its tentacles. And they should understand that the United States has gotten out of the business, this is what I started with, of taking offensive countermeasures against Iran. And they are trying to rope all of their allies, Saudis, Emiratis, Israelis, into the same system and the same approach. And in the process, they're making themselves, the United States became, in this maritime deal with Lebanon, the United States became the negotiator between Hezbollah and Israel. That's what they did effectively. And they became not just the negotiator, but a negotiator with their finger on the scales in favor of Hezbollah. So Israel gave up everything, got nothing in return. Of course, it was packaged as some kind of historic, great historical thing because they also wanted to help Lapid out in the election, which is going on as we speak or, you know, starting tomorrow. So let's take, let's just use the last few minutes that we had to take one more step back or step up to look at the whole field at once. If I understand you correctly, the administration is seems like you're arguing purposely even putting policies in place that is driving Saudi Arabia into the arms of the Chinese and to a certain degree the Russians. The administration is I I, I would say it's it's just to just to be correct. They don't want They don't want that outcome. They don't the, want that but, outcome. But they the policies are not accidental. The, the, the policies the, the are the policy is guaranteeing that outcome and the more it results the more they respond by attacks on the character of Saudi Arabia, right. which is not going to get them right. the result so they want. The administration is pursuing policies that are driving Saudi Arabia into the arms of the Chinese and the Russians. The administration is, maybe the right word is, oblivious to the important dynamics in the Caucasus and Central Asia to which Turkey is a critical, if not vital, ally. Sorry, can I make an amendment there as well? I don't think that that's entirely true. You think they understand them? Uh, I think that there are elements. And I, I, Jake Sullivan met with the National Security Advisor of Armenia and because the key movement forward there is for the United States to broker a peace agreement between Azerbaijan and Armenia. And combined with that normalization of relations between Armenia on the one hand and Turkey and Azerbaijan on the other. And that'll open up the Armenian economy and pull Armenia away from Russia uh, somewhat. I think that Jake Sullivan is reading that clearly. All indications are that he is, and I would give them high marks for that bit of it. There's some other elements that they're not getting because of their appeasement of Iran, mainly. Okay. But, All right. So I clearly haven't even been listening to our own conversation. If I get corrected on each of the summary, well, no, points, I never you know. made that. I never made that point before. I meant to get there, but I never got. No, there. no, it's fair. I think on Iran, to your point, in your mind, the administration is straight up appeasement of the Iranians, even if it's a little obfuscated by the fact that we're still in a no deal technical maximum pressure, you know, the place we're in now with the JCPOA is that the Biden administration, the Democrats, they're the party that pursues the JCPOA, you know, just like they pursue an Israeli-Palestinian peace. And this, in their mind, in domestic politics, distinguishes them between themselves and the and the warmongers it's the, it's like the, Gabe. It's, like, <laughs> it's the like journey, Gabe not the destination. The, <laughs> yes, it's always the journey. The journey to peace, right? It's just around the corner, and they're pursuing it. And when it comes to Israel, and we didn't quite get there, but and you didn't say it exactly like this, but it sounds like they are using Israeli geopolitical naivete or geopolitical misunderstanding of the United States as a tool to support those other policies yep. uh, that are coming. Through. Yeah, I would say they're, they're using Lapid's geopolitical night. I think Lapid, I would genuinely say, 
doesn't understand international politics at all. There are a lot of other people who are just focused on the domestic Israelis are focused on the three-meter fight with the evil Bibi Netanyahu, and they'll do anything and say anything and look to any, uh, you know. The Democrats also want to get rid of Netanyahu. I mean, the Biden wants to get rid of Netanyahu. So they have, that takes precedence over Iran. But if I take those four things, you know, how the administration approached Saudi Arabia, Iran, Turkey, and Israel, and take a step back, what is it that the administration is actually trying to achieve in its own mind when it looks at the whole board? Oh, yeah. So when it looks at because the whole board- Because these things would seem so to it, be in contradiction yeah, no, to- No, no, no. It, it, so it believes, it came in believing and it's so committed to these things now it can't stop believing. But it had a coherent set of ideas. I think they were totally wrong, but it was coherent. The number one assumption was that the United States and China are not in competition over the Middle East. The Chinese are largely comfortable with American primacy in the Gulf. That's point number one. Point number two, the Middle East is not as important as it used to be in the United States. And we can afford to put more emphasis on Asia, competition with China. This is where it gets incoherent because on the one hand, we're not in competition with China, but we can go compete with the China. So we can pull the, as if the Chinese are not going to notice that we're pulling resources out of the Middle East, you know, in order to go compete with them in East Asia, that they're not going to then fill the vacuum. But this is what they thought. They really thought, I guess, to give them more credit and the ideas more credit. They thought the contest with China is really primarily over Taiwan. That's what has to be managed. There are lots of areas where we're in competition with the Chinese, but there are lots of areas where we can cooperate. That's what John Kerry believes. You know, John Kerry believes we could cooperate with him on climate and so forth. So there's an element of cooperation, and then, and then there's a notion that there's competition, but it's not a zero-sum game. And so since it's not a zero-sum game, it doesn't mean that we have to see the Middle East in a zero-sum game. And we also don't have to see Russia, China, and Iran as in an alignment against us. So they believed very strongly that by agreeing to Nord Stream 2, they did two things. They distinguished themselves from the evil orange demon, Donald Trump, who thought Nord Stream 2 was a big deal. And they appeased Putin, and they relaxed tensions with the Germans simultaneously. So they restored our cooperation with our Western European ally, Germany, and we parked, this is language they use in the White House, we parked Putin. Right? Because he's now happy. He's not going to get, he has no reason to be aggressive with us because we were good to him. Then the Iranians are going to come running back to the JCPOA because they like it and they know who we are. And we've been assuring them all along that we're going to go back and we can find a modus vivendi with them. They're always going to be difficult customers. Yes, we know that. But we can find a modus vivendi with them. So we'll go back to the JCPOA on the nuclear file and then we will serve in the different arenas Iraq, Yemen. Lebanon, and so forth, as the intermediary between, you know, promoting de-escalation and dialogue and diplomacy between our allies and each one of the proxies of the Iranians. And that's all possible because another false assumption, Iran isn't trying to take over the whole Middle East and isn't working in cooperation with the Russians and the Chinese in doing so. And by that standard or by that framework, do you think the administration thinks that it's actually succeeding? Or do you think that it is reevaluating? It doesn't sound like it's really reevaluating the third assumption. It hasn't reevaluated. It's like, on the like, first two, like, I think it's a little bit different. This but. is like when you talk to, you know, it's funny when you talk to Germans. The Germans understand that they got Putin wrong and they feel bad about it. And they think, oh, boy, we really got that one wrong. They'll admit that. They're not ready to admit that they got renewable energy wrong. They're willing to push out the transition 
to renewables, you know, maybe it's going to take a little 10 years long. We're not going to have it done by 2032. It's going to take a little bit longer, perhaps. But they won't say, we really got that one wrong. You can't actually run a modern economy on wind and solar. That's just not possible in a modern industrial economy. They won't do that. They certainly won't say we got Iran wrong. Boy, and they won't say we got China wrong. They just sold a chunk of Hamburg, Port of Hamburg to the Chinese. So you can get one of these files in this mind. The democratic mind on geopolitics is not that different from the, you know, share some basic assumptions with the German mind. You can get a file wrong and realize that you messed up on that one without it changing any of your basic assumptions about how the world works. You think that despite some of the significant blowback or setback in world events to the administration's basic assumptions going in, whether that's Afghanistan, Ukraine, no Iran deal, you know, pick your others. If you're fat, if we're having this conversation again in two years, you don't expect a revolutionary change in approach to how they look at no, how people, they try and set the people order. Don't, no, people don't work that way. And you can see it. You can see it in different ways. It reminds me, did you ever read The Structure of Scientific Revolutions? What was it? Kuhn. Kuhn. Uh, no, I, no, I have not. It's a great book, by the way. One of my favorite books I read as an undergraduate. I should go back and reread it. You know, it's all about the Copernican Revolution. And how the astronomy, as astronomy got better and telescopes got better, they started noting the objective data that showed that the stars, the spheres, were not moving in a way that was compatible with the, what, how do you say, Earth-centric universe? Uh, uh, there's a word for it. But yes, but yeah. not compatible Solar, with the prevailing theory. Yeah, 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 yeah that, 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 that everything revolves around the Earth. And so, but they kept having this data, and so they came up with something called epicycles, so that instead of having just a simple revolution, the spheres would do these little loop-de-loops, which allowed them to continue to believe in an Earth-centric universe, but accommodate the data that they increasingly were, you know, the objective data that they were compiling. And I think that that's what happens in these sorts of situations. They, they understand they got Putin wrong, but they haven't moved to the idea that we actually need to win Ukraine has to win. We have to give Ukraine what it needs to win, even if that means going into Russia. We have to deter Russia and be seen to be deterring Russia across the board. They just adjust. They adjust, and they adjust significantly, and they deserve credit for the adjustment. I mean, I don't want to be completely negative, but they're never going to convert to seeing the world the way we do, which is that the heart of international politics is military competition, and the way you deal with your military adversaries is through deterrence, which requires a willingness to use offensive countermeasures. I don't think we can end in a better place where on the one hand, you're quoting Copernicus as someone who changes, able to get people to change the basic assumption. On the other hand, you end with the uh, caveman version of the world, uh, (laughs) which is without the military power, it's difficult to understand the elements without that. So Mike Duran, thank you so much uh, for being here and working with us through some of the fascinating dynamics, even if Americans seem to think the Middle East is less important than it used to be, but the fascinating dynamics inside some of these countries, between some of these countries and between us and some of these countries as well. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.alexanderhamiltonsociety.org.